I'm Elle, and this is Recollection, a feminist reimagining of art history. Our fondness for self-destruction does not derive uniquely from masochistic tendencies, but also from a certain religiosity. When I was uprooted from my motherland, I felt as if I had sinned without really knowing what I had done to be separated from Cuba. The subconscious idea of having committed a sin drives me to self-destruction. Reality manifests itself as an effective and lasting force. The obsession in my work? To reaffirm myself in this world. That was a quote from Ana Mendieta's diary, translated by the Hayward Gallery in their catalogue on Mendieta, entitled Traces. I want to start with Ana Mendieta. First, because my affinity to her was swift, yet also I think her work and what she grapples with will provide a lot of context for the episodes to come. Ana Mendieta's work isn't the kind you may traditionally envision, as it's not crafted on a canvas or cast in a metal mold. Her work largely takes place in nature, is formed by natural elements, and she works alone. Janet Haidt wrote, quote, Mendieta chooses a site only after she has wandered through it enough times to comprehend its most intimate characteristics. Sounds, fragrances, plants, stones, wildlife. In this way, she establishes her own history with the land. End quote. The only transference into the gallery space is via photo or video documentation. The act of witnessing is suspended by time as the documentation captures only a glimpse of memory that Mendieta provides the viewer. The actual works themselves are left in their original sites, not to be preserved, but intended to organically fade back into the environment from which they were birthed. This kind of practice is often dubbed as earth art. Adrian Heathfield wrote in his essay, Embers, quote, The corporeal traces she conjures seem disposed towards them elsewhere. Mandate's works with the earth are an exception amongst the works of her many male land art contemporaries, as she refuses gestures towards the land that would impose, supplement, and insist, end quote. Mendieta's body is often a natural element used to complete her works. This type of practice is often called co-figure body art. Mendieta's work is closely aligned with what one calls process art and furthermore, also performance art. I promise we'll expand upon these movements in episodes to come, as they are quite conceptual, but for now, all you need to know is that this type of art considers an idea to be a work of art rather than an ensemble of materials. Since the form she creates evoke a sort of femininity, she too is placed among feminist artists. Placing her within an exclusively feminist context, however, is unproductive and narrowing. Although Mandieta's forms often gestured towards a gender analysis and she certainly grappled with feminist notions, she should not be read solely as thus. So, I just named like five different movements that Mandieta could be placed within, and by many scholars and critics, she has. Yet somehow, she simultaneously resists them all as she resides in her own carved-out space. Mendieta's works harbor a multiplicity of reference and meaning. They extend deeper beyond the boundaries that these movements provide. As Stephanie Rosenthal writes on Mendieta, quote, Categories such as feminism, body art, and land simply do not apply to her work, because she has carved out her own creative space, the betwixt between. Her work is intangible, its essence is absence. The absence of the human body, the absent sculpture, the absent moment that is only captured on paper as a photographic echo. Mandiata's magic is the magic of the space between, of the very little, of the slightness, end quote. By not being comfortably placed within any of these categories or 
kind of insisting on a, a sort of liminality or exile state, she has a lot of latitude, a lot of power that she might not if she was immediately kind of shunted into one or another category. Oh, she's just an earth artist, so that's the only way we'll talk about her. Or she's only a feminist, so those are the books that we'll talk about her. So by virtue of not claiming a specific space or, or touching down in a specific location, um, I think her work has a great deal more efficacy uh, than it might otherwise. That was Dr. Jane Blocker you just heard speaking. Well, I'm uh, a professor of art history at the University of Minnesota. And I'm currently serving as the Associate Dean for Arts and Humanities in the College of Liberal Arts. Um, and I wrote uh, the book, Where is Ana Mendieta, some years ago now. Ana Mendieta was born in Cuba in 1948. To put her birth into temporal context, that's five years before the Cuban Revolution began in 1953, an event that would shape Mendieta's existence and ultimately her artistic practice. In the 1987 documentary film about Mendieta, entitled Fuego de Tierra, Mendieta's cousin Kaki speaks on Ana's relationship with the landscape of Cuba at a young age. In Kaki's retelling, it becomes obvious that she perceived a connection between Mendieta, the earth, and its elements that extended beyond a casual affinity to nature. As the political climate in Cuba shifted and Fidel Castro seized power, the Mendieta family was put into danger as Ana's father worked in opposition to Castro. It was decided in 1961 that Ana and her sister Raqueline would be sent to the U.S. alone as part of the emerging Operation Pedro Pan. Operation Pedro Pan was a program devised by the Catholic Church in the U.S. to house Cuban children fleeing from their homeland's sudden turmoil. At a surface level, the operation takes on a benevolent facade, but in reality, it was a poorly organized system intended to undermine Cuba's legitimacy within the Cold War's context. The Mendieta family was deeply religious and decided that the absence of Catholicism brought on by the communist regime would be detrimental to their daughter's well-being. Thus, they were sent away. Religion was chosen over nationhood, a decision that, for better or for worse, was made for Ana Mendieta, and a decision that we can later see she grapples with as she gestures towards both conceptions of nationhood and spirituality in her work. Raqueline describes being transferred to a state in a city they had never even heard of or furthermore unable to pronounce. Dubuque, Iowa, shuffled in and out of an orphanage for delinquents, a boarding school, and unkind Catholic foster homes, the Mendieta sisters were branded with a permanent skepticism, made to be known as outsiders, and endured violently racist gestures during their residence in Iowa. Sometime in her later years of high school, Mendieta began to express herself artistically as a painter. In a 1965 interview with Joan Martyr, Mendieta divulged, quote, The teacher said I should not be an artist because I didn't think I had enough talent, meaning I couldn't do renditions, end quote. Nevertheless, Mendieta studied art at the University of Iowa and began to parse out longings towards her homeland that had long been residing within her. As Susan Candle wrote, quote, When Mendieta was torn from her homeland at Cuba at the age of 12, she felt cast from the womb, severed from nature, end quote. As part of her university edification, Mendieta acted on some of her Latinx longings and traveled to Mexico. I first came into contact with Ana Mendieta's work in my high school art history class as a work from her Silhouetta series was integrated into our canon. Lying still, arms at her side, ankles squeezed together, 
Mendieta positions herself in a crevice between two rock formations. Tall green stalks speckled with small green flowers adorn the artist's body, making only her limbs visible. Looking closely, we can see that the flowers have been inserted in the crevices created by the artist's body. Her form begins to reflect unposed landscapes, mirroring the cracks in the earth that sprout wildflowers upon the entrance of spring. This simple act of adornment starts to dematerialize the artist's body. The presence of her body in nature suggests symbiosis over intrusion. Amagan de Yagul, the name of this work, my first introduction to Mendieta, was birthed during the artist's second trip to Oaxaca, Mexico. Mexico was a country Mendieta would visit many times throughout her career, serving as a site of artistic facilitation, yet also emotional restoration. Mendieta confirmed the restorative properties of Mexican earth as she stated that, quote, plugging into Mexico was like going back to the source, being able to get some magic just by being there, end quote. Stephanie Rosenthal adopts Mendieta's language of magic, writing that, quote, her works, subtle, small-scale, and at times almost invisible, are imbued with what she understood as a very real magic, relating to the religion and ritualism of her native Cuba, a magic that arose from her capacity to tap into ancient knowledge and ritual while constantly challenging the divisions between nature and her own body, end quote. And upon my first glance at Amagande Yagul, I could feel this connection surging through the artist's flower-adorned body. There was something else taking place in this image besides what was visible, and that was this ephemeral magic that Mendieta documented for our own corporeal connections in distant times and faraway spaces. Mendieta was fluent in English because she came here um, as a, a sort of tween, um, and um, and yet you know her all of her brain was mapped in Spanish. Uh, so you spend your life translating every thought you have into a language that isn't your own. And even today, you know, we see instances where people are shamed for their speaking a foreign language, um, shamed for speaking uh, Spanish, etc. So it's not even just a matter of having to translate, it's uh, taking a risk that you will be pointed out as someone who doesn't belong. So going to Mexico, a place where people speak Spanish commonly, uh, although of course a different kind of Spanish than what's spoken in Cuba, um, was incredibly nourishing and uh, restful in a certain way mentally, uh, I think. You're not having to work so hard to say everything. So linguistically, it was important, I think, in terms of the environment. You know, it's warm there, and she's by the beach, just as she was in Cuba. Uh, so there's a particular kind of um, environment that she's used to that she's, of course, not seeing in either New York or uh, in Iowa. And of course, there's seeing people that look like you and uh, that, that look familiar and act familiar and have a similar kind of relationships to the world or, um, you know, religious or um, cultural beliefs that come with it. So in all of those ways, I think it was a nourishing place for her and also a place where she did a huge amount of her artwork and, you know, because her life was cut short, we don't know where else in the world she might have gone from there um, and what other places she might have found to be similarly magical. But because it was an early place for her when, during her education, 
you know, I think it has a huge impact. There is a duality to Mendieta's work in that she suggests the symbiotic and the violent ways in which humans imprint themselves onto the earth. In her Silhouette series, she demonstrates an intimate fusion between the body and the earth. In the opening poem, Mendieta referred to a sort of obsession in her work. The Silhouette series is a prime example of such, as she imprinted her silhouette into the earth hundreds of times throughout her career. Mandita works within time and space, knowing that her silhouettes will expire and that the land used will be regenerated back into nature. The female form fuses with the earth harmoniously, as seen not only in Imagen de Agu, but her entire silhouette series. As Garada Masqueda wrote, quote, she seeks not to transform, but to participate, end quote. In dramatic opposition, Mandita's work also explores rage, wrath, and aggression. Blood is a residual property of life. Mendieta douses herself with blood in several films and documentations, utilizing blood as a charged symbol to indicate disruption, violence, and misogyny. In the 1973 film, entitled Sweating Blood, Mendieta fixates the camera to frame her shoulders up as if a sculptural bust. The part in her hair is pulled with blood. As the film matures, thick, viscous blood trickles down her forehead, slowly encasing her entire face. Mendieta's silence and unwavering gaze are staggering. As Jane Bocker writes in her second book, What the Body Costs, quote, Although no breath appears to emanate from Mendieta's body, no words cross her lips, the blood itself is uttered in a thin red whisper. It is the body's indelible remainder, end quote. Bocker further analyzes the metaphorical weight of blood, equating its relationship with Mendieta's silence as a reference to womanhood. Quote, It is true that women have a particular relation with blood, one in which bleeding and dying are not synonymous. Performance, like woman, bleeds but does not die. End quote. We see this phenomenon emanate throughout Mendieta's work, often and pointedly. Kaki, her cousin, expressed that, quote, she worked extensively with blood in Mexico. I mean, she made silhouettes with blood. I think this is an element that expresses very clearly the eternal splitting of her soul, her sensibility, her need to find herself again. End quote. This eternal splitting of her soul is, of course, a reference to Mendieta's search for origin. Throughout her life, Mendieta repeatedly searched for a reconnection to herself, her homeland, and the earth via her artistic process. In her death, however, she was paradoxically claimed by many. Well, I think that was a problem that I confronted almost immediately in, in looking at her work. When I began doing my dissertation research in the early 1990s, there was very little that had been written about her. A couple of very small articles, um, two or three very small exhibition catalogs. And, you know, she was mentioned in a couple of books on various topics. So sometimes she appeared in conversations about Latin American artists. Sometimes she referred in, she was referred to in uh, publications on Cuban American artists sometimes in texts on feminism, uh, sometimes in texts on earth art. So all of these different disciplines and modes of conversation were trying to claim her, uh, to identify her. And of course, art history, one of its goals is to try to identify and understand events and people from the past. And so the very operation of art history is in some ways to say, you know, this person is a minimalist or this person is an expressionist or this person was working at this time or this person identified in the following ways or had these biographical attributes. So 
so art history as a discipline, and most disciplines try to name things and categorize things. But because this was sort of at the beginning uh, of the process of categorization for her, you know, I was confronted very quickly with the question of um, how to categorize her rather than how had she been. And in my research and also in giving talks on the artist or giving talks, uh, you know, related to my dissertation, I also quickly discovered that the wounds surrounding her death um, were still very fresh and that a lot of people had very emotional views on her and emotional attachments to her in a way that they might not for an artist who had died of natural causes, you know, decades prior. So those people, too, very much were invested in, in claiming her as one or another thing. You know, I had women artists say, oh, we were dear friends. I really knew her well. She was really an advocate for feminism. And I spoke to people who were in the Cuban-American or Latin-American community or African-American communities who said, well, you know, she was a, a Latina sister. And she that was really her main focus. Um, and others, you know, said, oh, well, she's really an earth artist at its base, and so that's how she needs to be understood. So because of that emotional identification with her or need to claim her in that way, but also the fact that she had not been written about extensively and those questions of where to put her uh, were relatively fresh, that became a key focus of of my dissertation and then book. Once more in the film... Fuego de Tierra, Ana Swan Sanchez describes how Mendieta's passionate involvement with Cuba led to her characterization as a Cuban artist. He claims, however, that she wished that her artistic identification would be absent of a territorial claim. Quote, she wanted to be known first as an artist, end quote. I felt like everyone with whom I spoke about her wanted to claim her. And I totally understood that. You know, if my sister, one of my sisters were killed suddenly or if a dear friend of mine were murdered, um, you know, I would very much want to have something to say about that person's, who they were, uh, how they should be understood and remembered. And, and thus, I wanted to make clear, you know, I don't have those kinds of investments. I don't have a right, really, to make those sorts of claims. So again, it's not that I stopped thinking her work was really cool and amazing, and I still teach it all the time uh, and talk about her a lot. And I have subsequently published various things about her. So my second book, What the Body Costs, there's a chapter on her and uh, her use of blood. And more recently, I wrote an essay for the Latino Midwest reader that was about one of her films that she did in Iowa City. So I continue to be engaged in her work and think about it, but always kind of trying to handle that question of affinity for or affection for uh, the work carefully. That makes sense. I, I think that in my position right now as someone who is studying art history, I feel like that is somewhere where I'm learning to tread carefully and that I can't make affirmative statements about people I've never met and communities I've never existed in, which I feel sometimes is an uneasy threshold in art history because you're taught to write and make claims and sometimes to centralize movements in art. 
Sure. I mean, I see this in my own work, and I see it with students all the time. You know, you find an artist that you love, uh, which is a good recipe for success, right, that you're going to spend, you know, two or three years researching and writing about someone in a dissertation, so it's helpful if you kind of like them. Um, but the limitation there is, you know, it can make you less willing to think about their work critically or to ask hard questions of them. And particularly with an artist like Mendieta, who was killed at a young age, you know, there is this kind of sense that you're going to rescue that person. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to protect them or I'm going to secure their reputation or I'm going to make sure people know how amazing they were. And all of those are, you know, perfectly reasonable impulses, but they can blind you as a scholar to, you know, looking critically, to entertaining opposite views, or to just sort of intentionalist fallacy, accepting whatever the artist said about their work as fact, rather than considering that to be one element or one part of the evidence around them. Um, So those are some dangers that can happen as a result. I'm sure you've picked up on it by now, especially as Dr. Blocker was speaking. Perhaps part of this complication of claiming lies within the way in which Mendieta departed from this world. Mendieta and the sculptor Carl André lived as newlyweds on 300 Mercer Street. I know their former building well, as I pass it daily, shuffling to and from class. At age 35, in 1985, Mendieta was murdered as she was pushed out the 34-story window by André. The neighbors heard the couple arguing, witnesses on the street reported screams, there was evidence of a struggle and scratches left upon Andre's face. Andre was tried for a process lasting three years and eventually acquitted. In a 1989 issue of LA Weekly, Susan Candle, in reference to her own proximity to the window on Mercer Street, wrote, quote, Every time I saw that window, I thought about Mendieta and her husband, minimalist sculptor Carl Andre. I thought about what it means to be a woman living in the shadow of a man, what happens when you start to move out of that shadow, and how moving from the shadow into the light can destroy you." End quote. It's difficult for me to reconcile with this tragedy. It's not an ending I can sugarcoat with a claim on how in her short life she accomplished so much, or say something about her legacy, the usual postmortem jargon, because that dilutes the pain. And if I've learned anything from Mendieta's creative process, It's that pain is something to grapple with, meditate on, and create from. In March of 1981, four years before her death, Mendieta wrote the following diary entry that's translated version is also to be found in the catalog traces. Quote, And when life departs, it is engraved, on the motherland, alive, eternal, and memory. And so, as my whole being is filled with want of Cuba, I go on to make my mark, upon the earth, to go on, is victory." End quote. In the same year Mendieta wrote this poem, she traveled to Cuba for the first time since her childhood departure. As the years had waned on, the island that she had so heavily fixated on was but a memory. Dr. Blocker writes, quote, "...her perceptions of both Cuba and the United States were formed by each nation's multiple identities, the eternal ruptures that lie underneath their external cohesion." She learned the meaning of nation by confronting not only the borders between the two countries, but also those that crisscross within them, end quote. If we borrow um, uh, Benedict Anderson's idea about the nation, it is an imaginary thing. 
uh, that doesn't mean it's not real and doesn't have real effects, but it's an imagined thing. So our relationships to it are always also themselves sort of imaginary. Uh, so that's true for everybody, you know, particularly in this particular political and historical moment. Uh, I personally have a difficult time understanding the country that I live in, and yet I identify as an American. So there's that, too, is just like, what is the country? Is it individuals and their feeling? Is it a kind of cultural thing that's sort of undefined? Or is it something that's determined by the state? And obviously, it's all of those things at the same time. So the first point is everyone's relationship to their nation is kind of fraught and confusing. Then more specifically with Mendieta, of course, she's someone who left a country, came to the United States, and returned to a country that was a completely different country, uh, had a different political structure, different uh, economy, uh, different values, different people. Lot, lots and lots of people left Cuba after the revolution. And just from a simple demographic standpoint, it, it changed pretty radically. So she had a weird experience of leaving a country, which you think of as sort of a stable thing, and then coming back, and it was a really different entity. So that makes her relationship with the nation pretty complicated. And other elements, her gender and her perceived race in the United States, her perceived race in Cuba, um, changed her relationship with the nation in the same way that, you know, in contemporary American society, African Americans have a very different relationship to the nation and are often not viewed as having any claim to it. So her race, her gender, her original nation, the nation she returned to, all of those things, I think, uh, complicated her understanding of nationhood um, in ways that, you know, lots of other people don't experience. This understanding of nationhood was in itself formative to her work and her identity. After reading Dr. Blocker's book, I found myself enamored by the way in which she addressed the process of Mendieta's exile. Quote, Exile here refers not so much to her lived experience of national displacement as to a staged identity to which we become witness, end quote. The point of that claim in the book was to say, okay, where can she be located is really the operative question. Is she Cuban or is she American? Is she white or is she a person of color? You know, is she an earth artist or is she a performance artist? Is she a filmmaker? Uh, is she a sculptor? All of those questions are questions of location, um, where we locate her temporally, where we locate her historically, where we locate her in terms of her media and genre and themes, right? So the title of the book, Where Is She?, those are all answers to that question, providing location. So even answering, oh, she's in exile, is in a certain way another kind of location. It doesn't really solve the problem of location. It simply offers a third one. Well, she's neither in Cuba nor in the United States. She's in exile. So that's a third place. So as I'm writing, I'm realizing, well, that doesn't really solve the problem fully, except that by not solving it fully, it uh, highlights or reveals the danger of the question itself. And the reason that it's so hard to answer that question Another theme of the book uh, is, of course, the idea of movement, that people are not in places permanently. You know, they're, they're always moving, whether it's in and out of categories, in and out of allegiances, and certainly that was true for her. You know, I think she had a kind of predilection for a kind of Marxist or leftist perspective, but 
you know, had to wrestle with the fact that the Castro regime imprisoned her father and, you know, that there were a lot of negative consequences of Castro's taking over. It's not as though she was any one thing forever. So this idea of exile performing or revealing the problematics of the nature of the question is is really that. It, it is that the word points to the presumptions that are at work in the question of where. Mandieta chose a national park as a site to be artistically reacquainted to Cuba. Referencing Neolithic tendencies, Mandieta carved her work rupestrian sculptures into a limestone cave in 1981. Into a craggly, unpolished surface, Mandita chiseled away until she formed some of the minimalist feminine figures that she had spent her career developing. The forms and their names reference deities of the Taino and Sibini people, the inhabitants of Cuba before Hispanic settlement. The sculptures suggest omnipresence, as they are named after the deities of the first menstruation, the old mother of the blood, the moon goddess, the first woman, the mother goddess, and so on. Paradoxical to their universalism, however, they prove to be deeply intimate to Mendieta, as their creation is representative of a communion to her homeland. The ways in which she departed from Euro-American constructs of religion materialize in these cave sculptures. Leaving Cuba a Catholic and returning deeply invested in native religions, she indicates the ways in which Western influence has permeated not only her social, political, and economic realms, but also her spiritual doctrines, and furthermore, how she has rejected such influences, exchanging them for ones indigenous to her homeland. Although many of her works that we have explored in this episode suggest intention towards healing and their fusion to the earth, here Mendieta seems to confront her exile. It is a monument to the time past and the distance away. Although we can read deeply into the form's complexity and ability to extend beyond the impermanence of the body, I still think that very much will be lost in translation from form to words. For this work, I urge you to spend time looking deeply at it, imagining Mendieta's invisible process of carving them into being, how their forms were conceived from the pain of exile, and how they were birthed upon the joy of return, to observe the ways in which they suggest dematerialization, and how with time they too will cease to exist in this world, organically fading until they are indistinguishable from any other limestone surface. Yet by some, their traces will still be known. Recollection is made on Lenape land. Recollection is researched, written, performed, and produced by me, Elena Kochaya. Support for this episode was provided by funding from New York University's Gallatin School of Individualized Study. The music you hear on every episode is produced by MIV. Special thanks for this episode goes to Dr. Jane Blocker, Tia Glista, and Sophia Dorspin. That's all for now. See you next time. <laughs>